Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Jacqueline. And Alana. And welcome back to another episode of Black and Yellow. We have got a good one for you guys today. So the past two weeks have been a historic time, but let's be real. If you're a person of color, historic times have not always been kind to us. Right. Like, right. Like, I understand that. Yes. Right now, people are marching in the streets to end police brutality and to end systemic racism. And we're talking about all people everywhere. Black people, Mm -hmm. white people, Asian people, Hispanic people, young people, old people, all the way from New York to Los Angeles to Sheboygan to Des Moines. Yeah. To Japan, to to London. Yeah. To internationally. Exactly. Like everyone is in the streets fighting the good fight. But this is also a time that's been pretty emotionally triggering for a lot of people. Yes. And for some, we could even say it's been an emotionally traumatizing time. Right, Jack? Right. I mean, (laughs) based on everything we've been seeing on the news and there's so much that we can't unsee, Mm -hmm. you know, and also I think despite it being traumatic, I mean, trauma brings up old trauma. Right. So it's just there's a lot happening, um, very tense um, across the world. And uh, we wanted to uh, talk about it today with you guys. Yeah. So it's been a historic time, but it's also been a time for deep introspection and deep thought. And being a non-white person in America means that there's a certain game that we play from a very young age, even if we don't really realize it's a game. And that game is essentially act like them and you'll fit in. But here's the problem with this game. It basically plants the seedlings of racial stress unconsciously from a very young age. Because that game is all about denying your ethnicness, denying your person of colorness, the thing that makes you different, the thing that makes you unique, all in an effort to make white people not uncomfortable around you and your ethnicness. And it's essentially a no-win situation for people of color because we as people of color are not seen as whole and complete and viable people and our Mm -hmm. humanity is overlooked and that's racial stress like pure and simple yeah and that racial stress those seeds of racial stress are planted and essentially will bloom into racial trauma Mm -hmm. and racial trauma can affect us both physically and mentally yeah and it's everything It's real. And so today we have a great guest on the show who is going to talk to us about racial trauma and mental health. And um, speaking to her off mic in prep for the show, Jack and I were basically like picking our jaws up off the ground because she was (laughs) dropping so much knowledge and so much truth. And it was real and it was kind of hard to hear, but it was necessary. And we are so excited for you guys to hear from our guest today. Okay. I'm going to stop gassing her and I'm going to throw it on over to you, Jack. Will you please tell our listeners who our guest is today? Yeah. So everyone today we have Yuna Yoon with us today. I'm excited to bring on a fellow Asian American female here with us. Um, Her work in clinical social work as a therapist for about six years and counting now makes her um, have so much wonderful experience and valid information to share with everyone. So without further ado, welcome Yuna. Thank hey, you Yuna. so much for of the introduction. 
So yes, as mentioned, I'm an Asian American female, specifically Korean American. And I've been working approximately six years at Rikers Island as a mental health clinician. The role is multi-layered because the jail setting and the dynamics of care, custody, and control is so complex. Mm. Those three concepts are actually the official motto of the Department of Correction. And when you have multiple departments working with their unique policies and procedures, the frontline staff and the people we serve have to, on a daily basis, make the wisest and safest decisions we can. So I've really reflected on the motto of care, custody, and control from a mental health perspective. And now that protests against police brutality are happening under policing that has often involved police brutality, I find myself thinking of these concepts. Yuna, I think that you might have given us our title for the show because right now we're just in a working title. But <laughs> care, custody, and control, the three C's I've, that I've never heard arranged like that. Um, is really hitting me it's super powerful so let's 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 start at the beginning will you just define for our audience what is racial trauma just so that we're all on the same page (laughs) so that is a lived experience so it's it's a huge huge concept but simply put it's the cumulative effect of racism on a on an individual's mental and physical health So it's linked most commonly with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideations, and physical health issues. Um, So I want to unpack what the phrase cumulative effect of racism means. Please. Because that isn't, that's individual, that's as a community, that's in the present and in our history, right? So as an Asian American, and specifically Korean American, my experience of racism and that of my family will look very different from someone from a different racial group. And experiences also exist within a specific time and context. So my experience of anti-Asian racism pre-COVID is different now. Mm-hmm. And the degree of fear is also escalated by specific events and particularly sequences of events, as in right. this current climate with the deaths of African Americans and primarily men, alongside a very singular encounter that I believe the entire world has watched, which is the filming, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, (laughs) um, by an African-American male of a white woman's aggression, which is very interesting because we always talk about the white gaze, right, or or whatever gaze, and and how um, xenophobia is this idea of the other. Mm -hmm. Fear of the other. mm -hmm. And so the fact that a movement was generated by an African-American gazing, an African-American male gazing at the white female. Yeah. Right. Um, and in my experience, my, my work has been specifically with males, which is very, um, which is actually typical because at Rutgers Island, there's 10 facilities and only one is for women. Wow. Which is also I did not a, know that. Which is also a very interesting and and something to think about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right, and I think as as a woman therapist and social worker going there to work every day, not every day. I don't know. How, I didn't. I didn't know your work schedule, but I meant like <laughs> dealing with that as a woman. You know, even that there's there's a lot of. Um, nuances between just the opposite sexes that 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 this this there's so much to unpack there as well exactly 
Yeah, sorry. I'm again picking my job off the floor because I'm just shocked that that Rikers Island doesn't really serve women. That makes me sad. But and imagine I'm not being a get... woman inmate there, right. right? Oh my god! And it also speaks to the the degree of um, arrests, also, right? Right. It, it, yeah. it speaks to policing and how policing might have a role in how many people get arrested. Absolutely. So it's just it's actually also reflective of the number of people who get arrested. I'm glad that you hit up on on your experience as a Korean American pre-COVID, but also during COVID, because I think that for African Americans and for Asian Americans in the United States, we are experiencing the effects of COVID plus all of this social unrest and with a very different perspective and very different lenses Mm -hmm. than I want to say white America and to a degree Latino America is and I just wanted you to, to talk about um, what are some of the racial traumas that people of color are processing and dealing with today? So, part of that, and I think this is we've already been talking about this concept of intersectionality, mm-hmm. um, where part of it is rooted in various identities mm-hmm. and also within our different communities of color. So I think that there's different things that we can speak to. And the most impactful thing that I could say right now, because I kind of lost track of the question. um, That's okay. (laughs) There's so many, there's so many different ideas and, and injustices that we have to fight. And I think that's, that's really what drives me. And I think um, this podcast can do for your community that there's so much hurt and misunderstanding within our communities because we might all be fighting racism and that might be systemic racism might be a thing or like the the big thing but you know the hope is that it's not a trending thing right right Right. um forever thing yes because what's happened before and the the perspectives of people within the black community within the asian like there's no just single way that people have approached race and so for us to be organizing like what does that mean you know Mm -hmm. what combination of sort of a modern day martin luther king do we need for the collective because we do need those people who've been in anti-racist work for all this time who are now finally sort of like oh people are listening right Mm -hmm. right oh yeah tell me about it (laughs) But then you need, <laughs> but do you need the votes? You need the votes. You need mm-hmm. all the people to come alongside and to actually be noticed, mm-hmm. um, because power is unfortunately largely in resources, but there's also the power of numbers. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, I also think what's interesting about trauma is that trauma can imprint on us on all the way down to a cellular level. Like if we're talking about scientifically, I feel like we carry trauma and we pass trauma from generation to generation if you are a person of color. Absolutely. And I think it's called transgenerational trauma. I th- it's yes. Um and I think that we also have to work and and end that as well, if that can be possible. Uh, I do want to know, have you witnessed racial trauma play out in the jail or prison system as a mental health profession, as a mental health professional? Well, this ties in also with the first that you said about the physical, the biological, mm-hmm. because actually that is also connected to the definition of racial trauma, where oh. where it impacts our mental health as well as physical health. Right. So, so the way that our our body keeps the score 
of trauma. That's the title, I believe, of the book. And so this idea that um, we are physically, we're physically tense, we're, we're hypervigilant, our back literally in jail, your safety's, your safety's a huge, right? That, that's yeah. one of the biggest priorities. So, so your back is always facing the wall. So there's this sense of constant suspicion and mm-hmm. need to mm-hmm. need to be yeah constantly aware of what's going on around you and by doing that you have so much in terms of uh, your your heart rate your you know your ability to sleep and all mm-hmm. of that impacts even especially the young people. Um, so for an, a couple of years, I worked with specifically 18 to 21 year olds. Ooh, and, that's a fun age. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the time period where people's, their brains are still. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you want to think about what that means for, for their health and for their bodies. Mm. Um, not to speak of, you know, the jail food. <laughs> oh, no. Definitely Before we much- get to nutrition. <laughs> Yes, yeah. nutrition is key, right? Yeah, right. So it's, you know, it really is. Ability to move I would also imagine that in the, the jail and prison system, the, the presumption of guilt due to the color of your skin is even more heightened in that sort of an environment. Um, and I feel like PTSD, I'm sorry, I feel like racial trauma can invoke these feelings that are similar to PTSD. And I feel like there's a lot of people that are living that reality right now and that we see that in the, the, the video of George Floyd being murdered time and time again. We see that anytime we see a black body dead on TV. Um, do you think in your professional opinion, can racial trauma be cured? Is it a curable thing? So cure is such an interesting word and (laughs) a word that comes up so often these days, right? Mm -hmm. Because everyone's been using it to talk about the cure for coronavirus. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Ironic. Yeah. And we're, we're thinking about how um, there's no vaccine, um, but people are recovering Mm -hmm. um, and they're still receiving some sort of assistance, right? But then this is critical assistance for medical staff. And so that's how I like to look at racial trauma and the remedy for it. Because when we look at, you know, I'm speaking as a mental health professional, as someone who uses the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, um, the DSM-IV, and and right now there is no diagnosis in there for racial trauma. We have wow. PTSD that has very specific criteria, but that's the idea that it needs to get approved by these professional bodies who then make a collective decision on what counts as something that's put into this book. And mm-hmm. a lot of like that has huge implications too, because once you do that in, in our society, it gets a specific code and then that mm-hmm. involves health insurance. All of those things. So, so all of this is again, a, it's a systemic thing. And when we look at the idea of a cure, we can look at what our resources are and what and how viable it is for us to do anti-racist work and have people no longer think of certain things. Because the whole idea is that there, if if you are 
if you are triggered and you are like you are hyper vigilant, then it's it's not because it's actively happening to you. You're not always having a hate crime or a bias attack, mm-hmm. right? Like you right. are at risk for it. Mm-hmm. You're always at risk for it. And again, this reminds me of COVID. But you are outside, unprotected, a black man wearing a hoodie, mm-hmm. right? Or you're Asian wearing a mask, right? Mm-hmm. And and now you're a threat. Yeah. Or even yeah. the the fact that other people can see you as a threat and also that you could see other people as potential threats. Right. So this constant possibility of danger as opposed yeah. to um, actual danger is something that enables racial trauma to just exist as it is. And in a way, as I'm talking, this reminds me of jail too, because this is what really keeps people from freedom, right? This constant, like a reality that anything can Ooh. This constant reality that, that there's, there's a possibility. Yeah, it's, it's almost as though uh, racial trauma is not looked at as a viable mental health concern. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's, it's also, it, it is a concern in the sense, though, look at the costs. Look I'm at ah, the damage. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, okay. Viable <laughs> mental health concern in terms of it, like, some, some people might, um, as, as a re- reaction to how, how um, pernicious it is, can say, well, what's the point? Why try? Right. Because yeah. you can't hide, right? Yeah, exactly. You can't hide from coronavirus, but I'm so exposed to it. I'm so curious. <laughs> I'm so curious in, in a world, in America at least, where race and religion um, has always been at the forefront of many controversial, you know, uh, things happening um, I'm blown away that that now you say that it's not in the um, in in sort of the 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 work that you guys practice to you know become certified or schooling and all that stuff. And I just want to know your thoughts as to how come there hasn't been a procedure set to I guess cure or help remedy for racial trauma. Um, I think that also rests on an individual level for not only um, the, as you mentioned, our education, so the institutions, but also the people, the the students, as well as the professors. So my experience that led me to want to go to work at Rikers uh, was largely because of of a class I took called, um, it it was a class on diversity, racism, oppression, and privilege. And Mm. we had a class on incarceration. Um, within about the first significant chunk of it, we, we didn't get to the part on incarceration mm, because no. people were reflecting on white guilt, right? Mm, and, very and, common. And relative experiences of white relatives. Mm. And so all it takes is other voices to then take away, right? White voices right. to take away that space for us to do the work Mm -hmm. and a lot of conversation needs to happen, but because the existing concepts were already the focus in place, right? mm -hmm. Yeah. From a long time to now it's hasn't changed much in that sense. Right. Or even if, if it is, it it takes time as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And also when you look at the idea of white guilt, I was suspecting also the reason we never got to, 
incarceration or the for the black and brown people who are in, or actually directly involved was there was a discomfort we we could have just gone straight but yeah so i wondered in my mind what was stopping people right right yeah and so mm-hmm. these are the kinds of conversations like i could have considered i could i could continue having with people right mm-hmm. we're all works in progress yeah. right yeah. and it's so important for people to know people of different racial backgrounds oh absolutely in order yeah. to work together right that brings me to oh One really quick thing. I think that um, the experience that you talked about in your class, I think that that happens for when white people realize that racism and systemic racism and oppression to people of color exists. I feel like it's a very common trapping for white people to center their white guilt because the system is not set up for white people to realize how they benefit and what their privileges are within the system. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Like yes. if, if white people could realize how much privilege they have and how greatly they benefit, then it would for some in a modern day setting would lead them to go, Hmm, well, is it right to oppress this group of people that have this skin color just so that I can receive certain privileges? And I feel like that mold is changing. I feel like white people are now seeing how they have benefited and are trying to not center their white guilt in the middle. I think that we have turned that corner where I do think white people are beginning to do the work and realizing that centering their guilt or their fragility at the center of these uh, systemic issues is not going to help anyone. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Um, That brings me to what you said about how we would we do need to work together and this reminds me of the conversation we had off mic um, a couple weeks ago when we brought up the term or the phrase yellow peril supports black power and we kind of I remember the three of us kind of diving in and, and and wondering like what was that all about you know and so now that we are able to you know openly and um on air to speak about it I was curious as to what you think about the term yellow peril supports black power because it also brings me back to what you were saying earlier about xenophobia about how you know this was termed this this term was coined by white americans being afraid of yellow people afraid that we were going to take their jobs afraid that you know x y and z um you know starting way back in the late 1880s when the chinese exclusion happened um chinese exclusion act so what are your thoughts on it as an asian american as everything that's been going on you know with the with the asian cop standing there as george floyd was getting murdered like all of that's kind of exploded, um, and I'm curious as to what you th- oh, what you think about it all. Well, first thing, um, I was really drawn to the podcast. One of the things I was drawn to this podcast was the beautiful logo where you had the <laughs> where you had the yin yang and the yellow and the black, <laughs> and and that has been a trending photo lately. Um, yeah, where mm-hmm. you you have um, the image, I believe, of a panther and of a tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There, uh, that whole historical concept of the sea of, of Asian, of, of yellow faces that are, that are just coming in and, and also with the intersectionality aspects that, that the males were aggressors and that, um, that they were threatening to the, you know, to the trope of the white female. Mm-hmm. Um, that whole concept being then turned into 
the sort of the way we would look at the n-word i believe mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um Re reclaiming a derogatory uh phrase yeah yeah, yeah. making it your own yeah so i i, I see the uh, connection that is being drawn there um it's also depending on what people want that to mean for them because and and i thought of that when i thought of how some some african-american people don't want to use the n-word Mm -hmm. or or you know don't use it in front of my grandmother or i would never use it in front of my grandmother same <laughs> <laughs> we all know yuna would never say that in front of her grandmother <laughs> and and neither would i <laughs> um the the idea of it being part of a shameful part of our history yeah. i think one of the things it can do is remind us that um that that this is what happened right that mm -hmm. this is something that we are reclaiming but that this is it, it's naming something and names are powerful in that way mm -hmm. um i like this idea of black power being supported mm -hmm. because to address racism we need to locate black people within it mm -hmm. you cannot talk about race and racism without talking about African American. Um, I have so seen, I've, I have done research online, uh, you know, modern day research. Exactly. Um, <laughs> where people have been expressing different views and feelings on this, that, you know, they, they wonder if it's, if it's appropriate to have two things kind of standing next to each other, if the oppression of Black people was so much more significant, mm -hmm. sort of like you guys are taking up half and half of that space. Mm. But one of the ways that we can address that is to not just talk about the, the realities, but the, the purpose of the, the mission that we have, the shared mm -hmm. mission, right? Yeah. Which is to have that reciprocal relationship between all races. And in order to do that, people need to be one-on-one. -on -one. People need to be, you know, one person with the same... Emo like in inherent worth as the other person. Right, and so right. in that case, um, I think uh, people can sort of fiddle around with what, what they want to call themselves, right? Or what the mission is. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's about uniting people, sometimes we do need those phrases without kind of nitpicking or parsing out what they mean mm -hmm. in order to unite. So that's, mm -hmm. that's what Yellow Apparel supports Black Power means to me. Like and it that. also sparks conversation because that actually led to like, well, you know, what does it mean to have these two next to each other? Like, shouldn't Black Power be put on, you know, an additional right um, level and, and we can acknowledge those things as we converse? Yeah, I agree. I think there is so much conversation just if you take African-Americans and Asian-Americans and their shared history together um, with this term, you know, and especially Korean um Americans with the um, 1992 riots and everything that went on there. And there, it's just, there's so much that I think even Asian Americans and African Americans have gone through together, have been pitted against each other, have been constantly been, you know, um, uh, I guess, uh, pinned where, where one is better than the other, or because Asians are the model minority, then that doesn't allow black people to succeed all kinds of just, you know, obviously white propaganda, um, and nonsense, but I think I think you're right. It does create at least conversation to get people to become uh, 
more curious and and dig deeper, especially if they are white, you know, Mm -hmm. just because Mm -hmm. they're white doesn't mean they don't have to think about this stuff. I think they have the responsibility to do that now. Um, Have you seen any kind of type of yellow peril supports black power in your line of work um, in terms of the prison system or even, you know, as a fellow um, Asian American in your line of work? I mean, is there any sort of that I know it's a very tense environment and, and, and sensitive as well. So is there anything where you have seen examples or stories of of where, you know, two minority races um, are there really supporting each other um, because they're simply uh, marginalized groups? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so actually, uh, I, I want to somewhat answer this question, but also kind of address a bigger thing about Rikers and my experience there. Mm-hmm. So... When we talk about the yellow peril um, in our modern day context, it also can include this idea of this mysterious virus coming in from China. Totally. Yeah. Being this threat, right? Right. And so as I, as I worked at Rikers, um, more and more I was thinking about the significance of breathing. So we're in a pandemic that transmits through our breathing, right? And the yellow peril has been the cause of it. And we're wearing masks to shield ourselves from others and vice versa. Um, it's interesting because in Asia, actually, they have been wearing masks a lot more. And a lot of times it was to shield other people. If you have a cold, you're mm-hmm. protecting them. Right? Um, right. But that has sometimes become the target of hate crimes when, when people are seen wearing masks. And, and Asian Americans were speaking about being afraid to leave their homes initially when they were um, they when when all the hate crimes were occurring. So so we have that um, anti-Asian racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the jail setting, inmates are controlled by either use of force or canine, which is also essentially pepper spray, but much stronger than what you'll purchase at the store. I see. So the first time I wore a mask was not now. It was at Rikers, where staff and other officers would be exposed even with masks. We've had people pass out and in some cases have to be sent out. So now with protesters marching against police brutality, extrajudicial forces are on the streets on top of the police. And they're literally from jail in the form of corrections officers, as well as various other law enforcement agencies. Mm -hmm. And thus, in a sense, even while I'm outside of Rikers, it feels as though we are all inside or that Rikers has flipped inside out and we are all criminalized. Oof. Yeah. 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 That's that that gives me chills because it, it really like as I look at my four walls, you know, I'm I I can I definitely feel it. You're right. And and this is all traumatic and we are all seeing this through the news, right? So there's yeah. that again, it's the threat of mm-hmm. um and and that is the threat of racial trauma. So one of the reasons I chose to work at Rikers was because I felt strongly about the problems that are underlying and never see the light of day in our mm. society. Mm. But now we're in an era where all of our broken systems are brought to light. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And people are protesting and people are succumbing to illness and exposed to violence. Crazy. It, it drives home the point even more mm-hmm. that we are feeling what it must be like for people who are having trouble breathing. Wow. That's beautifully for said. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, I also want to just make one point about yellow peril supports black power because I feel like people are now beginning to learn about what that phrase means. And I just want to note that that 
has roots back to the 1960s, but Black Lives Matter is a different era and a different time. That was 1960. We're in 2020, and I, I'm all for and supporting of Asian Americans reclaiming this derogatory phrase and using it as a phrase of empowerment. Because at the end of the day, I feel like Yellow Peril supports Black Power is such a galvanizing phrase and such a a phrase that spurns people into action that. Mm-hmm. I am really, really proud of the Asian American community that is in that's here in the United States, because I feel like there's been a lot of Asian American uh, stereotyping that's been overcome during this time. I feel like to think about the two stereotypes between blacks and Asians, they are starkly different. I mean, I know that our show is called Black and Yellow, but the stereotyping of Asian Americans and African Americans is really more, it's black and white. Yeah, literally. You're black and I'm white. and And that's what they want. Yes. And one of the biggest stereotypes that's always been lobbed towards Asian Americans is this idea that they are apolitical and that they do not understand other based violence or other based racism. And I think that is highly untrue. We are seeing that now more than ever. We're seeing more Asian Americans, especially Asian American youths, really mounting up and fighting the good fight. So it does make me sad when I hear people criticizing people using uh, the phrase yellow peril supports black power because I think the common knock is like, oh, it detracts from the African-American movement because you're equalizing Asian-American and African-American struggles. And I don't think that that's what that statement is doing. Mm -hmm. But in 2020, I think it's really important that we look at each other's we, meaning the collective we are looking at each other's Mm -hmm. humanity and realizing that. We can both support each other. We both understand what it's like to be hate to be hated on because of the color of our skin. Mm-hmm. And that we all need to be galvanized in some way, shape, or form. And so I feel like this the resurgence of this phrase is is putting us on a path to more empowerment and more togetherness. For sure. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. Um, and part of it is um and yet bringing another phrase on Go for the it. model minority mm, yep. that has been the thing after it, it was coined by a white journalist, right? Of course. It was after the civil rights. So, so Asian Americans benefited so like benefited immediately from the civil rights movement. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. what then happens is we're pitted against a black community, mm-hmm. black and brown community by people um, who can look at the immigrants and say, well, you know, they came here and they picked themselves up by the bootstraps. Mm-hmm. Um, look at them in comparison to African-Americans, right? right? Right. It's kind of like this whole idea of poor people are poor because they're lazy. Right. Yeah. And it hits people not just because of those stereotypes, but because of resources. It has communities fighting over resources. Mm-hmm. And that's also the case with um, with things like the LA riots, mm-hmm. you know, where where minorities are looking to one another and not to the main white supremacy that the structure that is in place mm-hmm. that has created that. Right. Yep. It's an old, long overdue structure that needs to be yeah. changed. Mm-hmm. which I think yeah. is and people so, are learning to do that now. Yeah. And so um, solidarity 
means that we don't look at the other person of color and say our gain is their loss and their gain is our loss Mm -hmm. because that's what kept people just static in their spaces and you know when I thought of that idea of breathing um and and black men saying I can't breathe their voices were not lifted right their voices were silenced by slavery Jim Crow and on and on Mm -hmm. and then the model minority was staying silent so that they could be the little models Mm. and fit in. Mm -hmm. And so that's where this idea of um, breathing and for all of us to just take a deep breath. And I think that again (laughs) ties into mental health. Yeah, for sure. Totally. Yeah. And it means, you know, those, and and this is where everyone who's coming in and learning and protesting um, all of a sudden, we receive a lot of information. For sure. Um, and and uh, I think we already touched on it, but that's how racial trauma works. That fear is triggered on both ends by racists who perceive Black people as inherent threats, while Black lives are literally in perpetual danger due to threats. Yeah. Being born Black is being born into a life of trauma, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I, you know, obviously in your line of work, you help a lot of people and you um, understand um, the kind of help that they need. You know, everyone does need, everyone is different. Everyone's circumstances and stories are different, just like we've been talking about. Um, so what what advice would you give to our listeners who are feeling triggered this time, who during the, these times who, you know, may not be black, white, Asian, Latino, um, Indian, any of the above and everything as well. Um, what can they do to take care of their mental health during this time um, or any kind of general mental health advice um, for our listeners who may stumble upon the show? I think it comes down to doing the easy, simple thing. Like I just said earlier about our breathing, just mm. we have to take a deep breath. We mm-hmm. have to breathe. Beautiful. And yeah. whether whether that's, you know, that's starting from white supremacy and from white people who are, and I've heard, and I've heard this phrase recently about um, taking a crash course in racism, mm-hmm. right? Like taking away the pressure to do that mm-hmm. and just taking a breath and just thinking about the broader context and the broader timeline. What's realistic to you? Um, when will the passion fizzle out? Right, what we talk about that. Be, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, what will happen when, what does breathing for Black people look like? Mm. What does breathing look for Asian people look like? Yeah. Right? And I think mm-hmm. this is where the healers come in, in, in a variety of modalities. So you have therapy, um, but you have mental health being discussed by so many different um, industries, so many different segments of our societies. Politicians are bringing it up, yep. right? When, when it hit, everyone was um, given the option to have access to services and hotlines. And taking care of ourselves is going to be key. And once we do that, we can just naturally ride this movement. Because I, I think that's how transformation happens anyway mm-hmm. that there was a reason for this this was a long time coming mm-hmm. for sure. um we 
don't need to question everyone's motives. Mm. Um, and people are just in different spaces. And also when we don't question it, perhaps, you know, I could, I could have looked back at Rikers and thought like, why are every, why is everyone doing this now? But maybe, you know, this is their Rikers moment, right? Yeah. That's what yeah. George Floyd means, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe I had my George Floyd. And so we lift everyone's names up. Mm. We say everyone has inherent worth. Mm. And I think just the declaring of that in the many different ways we can do that through our art, through your podcast, you know, through, um, through just supporting Black businesses, right? One of my friends, um, she recently became... Uh, she recently opened her private practice and she's, you know, she's posted it on Facebook and Instagram that she's a black therapist. Woo-hoo! So I've been just <laughs> giving her a shout out. Right? That's awesome. Um, so doing that work is going to bring together. Mm, I like that. I like that you say sustainable way because Alana and I talk a lot about, well, you, you, Alana mentioned the burnout um, mm-hmm. <laughs> period and how, you know, they're like, go, go, go. Everyone's doing this thing. We're protesting. We're being angry. We're shouting. We're posting. We're doing, you know, a 10 minute rant on my Facebook and, and, and then they burn out. Um, so I do, we talk a lot about how it's, it's the long game, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the, the macro um, Absolutely. perspective on this. Yeah. It feels like mental health is such our, our hot, buzzy words right now it feels like everyone's talking about among all the other things that people are talking about mental health I feel like has seen such a sharp increase in interest people are wanting to know as much information as possible about how to protect their mental health and I I have a feeling that that's coming from a place of suddenly people that didn't think they were at risk for mental health issues maybe they thought that they had never experienced depression anxiety stress are now suddenly feeling it when i say these people i'm saying read rich white people are now suddenly having to come to grips with maybe the struggles of their mental health and so you guys are becoming more and more essential you guys i'm I'm saying uh mental health workers are becoming much more essential than ever before um what advice would you give to people who have never had a therapist before, have never, I guess, done teletherapy since we are in the age that we are in? And like, how would you suggest going about finding a mental health care provider if you've never done it before or if the the thought of that scares you? Yeah, because it still does scare. It's still not normalized nearly enough as, as I, right. I, I, I wish it, it would be personally. So I want to normalize that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And say that it could be difficult to even go and reach out, to even talk to the therapist, um, to talk to more than one, because you should definitely Ah. do therapist shopping and see who's going to be a fit for you. And then you have to try it out. Mm -hmm. There's no other way that people will know. Um, and sometimes, and a lot of times, people don't know what they need until they start yeah. talking about it. And mm-hmm. So true. I can't be further from the truth. <laughs> I think that's a good point that you bring up because it's not a one and done. It's not like I found my therapist. Okay, great. Like sometimes you have to try. You have to try them yeah. on for size. Like the, the medium didn't fit. Let me try yeah. the extra large. Like maybe I have a wide foot. Hmm, I don't know. Let me try that. I'm really happy that you said that. Yeah. 
and and you know i'm speaking as a social worker so i'm, I'm biased towards social work but we are talking always about systems and and do therapy in the context of the person in the environment mm-hmm. and so interesting i think reading therapist blogs because people have their private practices and they have their own little stories or people are on social media i don't really have much of a social media presence but i'm i'm getting there and basically if you look at a lot of the a lot of the resources on Asian American mental health, ending the stigma of Asian American mental health. Mm. You might find someone that you really resonate with and Mm -hmm. you could start doing your own sort of psychoeducation, which just basically means kind of what it sounds like, education on mental health. Yeah. And and sometimes education itself is healing. Yeah. So I would start there. I would start there being strategic about what it is that you might be looking for. And then taking that risk and just putting it, you know, just being aware that that is worth it. And if it, you know, if it doesn't work out, then you can always try some other method. And sometimes even within that process, you will be able to learn from that initial encounter. I think that's really beautiful. Sorry, my eyes are over here sweating. Um, I think that's really, really beautiful. I didn't know your eyes could sweat. (laughs) (laughs) Jackie, it's a secret. Oh, okay. Um, But yeah, I think that that's really beautiful advice that I don't think I've heard anywhere up until this point. I've never, I've never heard anyone phrase it that way and say it that way. I think it's a beautiful message to, um, I think I, I love that you said that like you need to strategize because like no one's yeah. thinking like like a general going into war you know like no one's thinking about like it's it's so it sometimes feels like it's such an emotional roller coaster that's like to strategize you have to somewhat be put together and that's kind mm-hmm. of like what I think about but I do agree I think did you say it's called psychotherapy is that what you said psychoeducation psychoeducation that's what you said yeah I think. I think that's wonderfully put in in the sense of just going and even reading because um, I know like in the Asian community it's it's you don't talk about it you know like same grandma, in the black yeah like they're just gonna be crazy forever and then you you then you then you're crazy right mm-hmm. so it's um I think that that's that's really well said for anyone who's struggling or or allowing everything that's been happening to kind of be the catalyst, right? Uh, of that like tipping over edge to go and to find that kind of help or to seek that kind of help. Um, yeah. So I'm really grateful that, that you spoke on that so wonderfully. Any final thoughts you want to share, Yuna, before we get out of here? I mean, we could talk to you all day, but I know that you have a very important life to lead. So um, <laughs> as I, as I mentioned, so um, I don't, do a lot of social media. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook, but I have been assisting organizations in COVID relief projects and anti-racist work. So um, part of that is about elevating and developing the profession of psychotherapy. Mm. Um, So I'm co-chair of the New York Coalition for Asian American Mental Health. Um, So it's not a non-profit. We're we're just a bunch of volunteer therapists and we have a professional development group. We get together for peer supervision um, which is really helpful if you don't have a supervisor um, just outside or if you just want that extra, extra support. Mm-hmm. Um, there's undoing racism workshops um, led through a national organization, which has affinity groups for different racial groups. 
Um, I can't say enough about the work of Asian American Federation and the organizations it partners with, um, not only social service, social service agencies, but also foundations. Because at the end of the day, ultimately power is largely about who has resources. And so it's important for people to be thinking about the ways they can give back. I couldn't agree more. And just so that I have this jotted down properly for the show notes, the first organization that you mentioned was the New York Coalition for Asian Americans and Mental Health, correct? For Asian American mental health. Asian American mental health. Perfect. I'll be putting that in the show notes because I think that's a very, very, very valuable organization. And then Asian American Federation was the second one, correct? Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Yuna. This has been an amazing interview. You've been our first guest. I don't think we I don't think I said that at top of show or we have mentioned it at any point during this episode, but we feel so lucky to have you as our first guest. Yes, it was so such grateful. a pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. So much. Come back anytime. You're now officially a friend of the pod. thank you definitely listeners i hope that you guys loved what you heard we're going to link to yuna's information as well as these two organizations that she mentioned in the show notes if you want to follow up uh that is the end of our episode we'll be back next week but we are the black and yellow podcast you can find us on instagram at black and yellow podcast we're on spotify on apple itunes And, you know, it would really help us out if you could just leave us a little rate and review to help propel this show forward. If you know anyone that would enjoy the show's content, go ahead and tell a friend. Jack and I would love it. Uh, If you want to find us individually on Instagram, I am Alana Webster at Renegade of Fun. I'm Jacqueline Chung-Young on the gram. Nice and simple. Um, (laughs) And we are grateful that you guys are tuning in and supporting us. Um, More now than ever, we feel even more grateful that this work is being listened to and that we can share our hearts with you guys. So stay safe. Um, Oh, one final person that we're thankful for is Christian, the producer of our show. (laughs) Christian Humes over at Zeitheit is the producer of this show. We thank you so much, Christian, and we will be back next week. Bye, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye.